0: The Spin-off Podcast Network. Tallow for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the facts change is
1: brought to you by The Spin-off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwibank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business, or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. There's been some big news this week about Three Waters. And I should really be telling you about all the ins and the outs and the complications and the dramas and the back and the forth about Three Waters and why it's important. And, of course, it is. And I could tell you all that, but I'll spare you all that. And instead, talk about what really matters in our political economy. And you might be surprised about what I think really matters. It certainly surprises me because when I started out trying to understand what's going on in politics and the economy and how we get things done or why we don't get things done, I thought all of the answers were in the beehive and right next door in Parliament. That if only I could understand what the people in the Reserve Bank and the Treasury and the ninth floor and in the debating chamber were saying, then I could really understand what was going on in the political economy. And actually, that's how most people who watch politics and our economy think, that the big decisions in what is still a pretty small country happen in the centre. And if you want to know what's really going on, you need to only watch the centre. After about 20 to 30 years of doing this, and doing it in various places around the world, come back to New Zealand and after 10 years of being in and around Parliament based in the press gallery, watching Parliament, going to beehive press conferences, I'm increasingly of the view that this is not the centre of things. This is not where the big decisions are made. The ones that really matter now. They're decisions that are actually made in council chambers and in not voting booths but in voting decisions on bits of paper that are then mailed to places, if you're lucky to receive the voting papers to start with in a local government election. I think the future of our political economy is actually decided at local government level. And this week on When the Facts Change, I want to explain why and explain how we need to change how we think about financing local government or councils, the relationship between local government and central government, and why in an era when our biggest challenges are housing and affordability, climate change in action, and child poverty reduction, the biggest things that we can do to make a difference will actually happen around council tables in decisions about things like zoning, whether or not a road should actually be a cycleway, whether or not 10 houses are built instead of 100 houses, whether or not a pipe and a water treatment plant are actually built or not built, how it's funded, whether or not there are water charges, whether or not there are congestion charges. These are all decisions that will be made by councillors and unfortunately there will be decisions made with a deep democratic deficit. We know that turnout rates in local government elections are extraordinarily low, and the ones we had this year were just as low as ever. In some cases, they were actually worse. And it's meant that the people who make the decisions about the future of our cities, and this is where the future of New Zealand will be, like it or not, those decisions are going to be made by older, more Pākehā, more suburban more land-owning, more car-driving, more double-cab ute-buying, homeowners in the suburbs of our towns and cities, in our provinces, in our cities right around the country. Why? Well, that's because the turnout rates are so much higher amongst those people who have a stake in their city through land and, of course, drive around the place have deep connections to it and have the time and money to think about what's going on in their local area. And in particular, they perhaps haven't made the mistake that I and many others have in believing that the real action is at the centre. Let me explain. We now know that we have three main challenges. To make housing affordable again, to improve the quality of our housing stock so that there aren't so many cold and mouldy houses making so many of our kids sick. Making sure that our housing is secure enough and that we can stay in it long enough so that our kids don't bounce from school to school and that they don't spend their winters shuttling back and forth between A&E in a mouldy cold house that's costing more than half of disposable income. That's the reality of our housing stock in New Zealand. Secondly, we need to find ways and places to live so that we don't have to drive our double cab utes and our cars and our vans all over the city for hours at a time being stuck in traffic, belching out smoke and, of course, carbon emissions. So how do we do that? Well, we have to find ways to build houses in the right places, build the right type of houses that are relatively small, that are relatively affordable, that are warm and dry, and if we're really lucky, carbon neutral over the life of those buildings, and close enough with the right sort of parking or places to store bikes or connections to walkways and busways and cycleways so that we can have affordable, warm, dry homes where we can walk or cycle or electric bike, or electric car, to and from our workplaces, if we do actually go to workplaces, be able to maybe work from home with a big juicy broadband connection, go to school and hospitals and be with friends and whānau, in ways that mean it doesn't cost us an arm and a leg and cost us hours and hours and produce millions of tonnes of emissions that either we'll have to pay for in years to come or will contribute in part to cooking the planet. All of those decisions about where we build our houses, what types of houses they are, how they're standardised, how much they cost, whether or not they can be built fast enough, whether they're built with the right materials, almost all of those decisions are made at council level, as are the decisions about our roads, about congestion charges, about redeploying roads and motorways for cycleways and walkways, about building enough busways and buying enough buses and having enough bus drivers and eventually trains to be able to get around these redesigned cities. So is our governance and our structure of finances for local government and central government up for this big challenge? Clearly not. Now, as I mentioned at the start, we could have spent a lot of time talking about Three Waters, and I will a little bit, but in essence, Three Waters was putting the cart before the horse. You might not have heard of it, but actually it matters there was a future of local government review set up by local government minister Nanaya Mahuta a few years ago. This was done pretty much at the same time as Three Waters being launched. It was designed to find out what would be the right governance structures, what would be the right financial relations, the right financial tools for local and central government to achieve these things that we're talking about. Because New Zealand has a particular problem with the way our local governments operate, how they're funded, how big they are, and it means that we have failed repeatedly and deeply to invest in our infrastructure for the last 30 years. Just let me go back and explain a few things about how local government works. Back in 1989, in the Roger Douglas years, those big shifts after the demise of Robert Muldoon, we saw dozens and dozens and dozens of councils effectively consolidated and put together into just over 60 councils up and down the country. And this was even before the consolidation of Auckland's councils into the so-called super city. Back then, councils were able to raise rates And they could do a few things like parking tickets and library fines, but they couldn't raise too much money. That's because the government, the central government, did most of the spending on things like hospitals and schools and the police. But before 1989, the central government had also helped out local governments a lot to develop new suburbs, to build pipes, The Ministry of Works would go in there and help and spend on the big, chunky infrastructure, such as motorways and dams and roads to make sure that people would have homes through the 50s and 60s and into the early 70s when we had the highest building rate we've ever had, higher than even now. The central government helped. The central government saw its role as to underwrite the growth of cities by paying and planning for a lot of the things that ensured our population could grow and we had a lot of young people. Now we call them the baby boomers. Back then they were just the kids of the veterans who came home from the Second World War. But in 1989 that all changed. The idea was New Zealand was seen as a slow-growing, in fact probably stagnant place, with not much population growth, an ageing population that had overspent on infrastructure. And now its job was to reduce the size of a bloated government to stop unnecessary infrastructure development and to ensure that the size of government could be reduced and you could get on with the main game of reducing tax rates. For 30 years, that's been our mantra. The trouble is, for the last 20 years or so, we changed the fundamental assumption about population growth and it was done from the centre. From our government, we changed migration settings and unleashed population growth ranging from 1% to 2% for the last 20 years. That was five times faster than was expected back in the late 80s and early 90s and obviously way more than was built for in terms of infrastructure. Back pre-'89, The central government did a lot of the funding of that infrastructure and planning for that infrastructure for population growth. But that went. Unfortunately, the population growth came and we hadn't built the infrastructure. And unfortunately, the financial structures and the planning behind that also haven't changed. So we risk making those same mistakes all over again. This was the background of this latest review into finance and government for the local government area. And in the last week or so, we've got the report back, the draft report of it. In this week's When the Facts Change, I talked to Penny Holtz, who is a former deputy mayor of the Auckland Council, has been in this sector for decades, and was on the panel considering submissions for the future of local government. This week on When the Facts Change, we look at what needs to change to actually get the infrastructure built for this new era of medium density housing mode shift and improving our well being by having warm, dry, carbon neutral homes. How on earth are we going to do it? That's this week on When the Facts Change. Welcome to Penny Holtz, the former Deputy Mayor of the Auckland Council and a member of the Future of Local Government Inquiry into the Future of Local Government. Penny, it's lovely to have you. Thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change.
0: Oh, Kia ora Bernard. What a pleasure it is to have a chance to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, we've been um, uh, mixing in the same sort of circles for feels like decades now, (laughs) um, trying to understand uh, why it is our councils, local government, central government, maybe aren't doing the things that we'd love around housing and infrastructure and public transport. And you've been in the bowels of the machine um, from various angles for over those years. Tell us, why do you think it's so hard for councils and the central government to achieve some of these things?
0: Gosh, that's uh, the the answer to that could take a couple of hours to unpack, Bernard. But there's a there's a whole lot of things that play here. You know, not the least of which being politics. Councils are basically, you know, lead by politicians. And the current system of of politics doesn't necessarily always lead to long-term decisions that include the, you know, intergenerational elements of them. They're often um, striving to be popular, which, you know, raising debt doesn't sort of um, certainly support. And these are complex and gnarly issues that that we're dealing with. So, you know, at the moment the the current structures of local government don't necessarily deliver up the best results, which is what our, our report
1: is is trying to deal with. What did you, your submitters tell you about that relationship between local and central government? It's not good
0: you know it's it's a it's a relationship desperately in need of some serious marriage guidance counseling and or or partnership guidance it has the potential to be such a critical and important relationship and for the you know the future of Aotearoa central government and local government simply need to get their act together and work out how to get on collaborate share resources and jointly um, look at solutions to some of the big gnarly problems we're dealing with and at the moment that's really not happening you know the the relationship is is a little bit uneven there's a power imbalance at play and the feeling that local government has is that central government holds all the power and all the money and doesn't want to share and central government feels that local government is simply not up to not up to scratch and why would they bother to share and you know again this is something that needs redressing because local government holds many of the solutions to some of the huge issues. And you you know outlined often in, in your podcasts and in, in your writing some of the big gnarly issues that central government's facing that can be solved at local level.
1: Can you unpack for um, those people who may not be familiar with the financial relations between councils and government, how that power imbalance is so uneven and why it's different from... Other places in the world,
0: at a really simple level, you know, I think for local government has about eleven percent of the public spend. The rest of that spend um, is is pretty much central government. So, in other words, your your taxes pretty much pay for for most things that that happen in your world. But local government is expected to deliver pretty much everything else, and every part of your life is touched in a good way by local government apart from when they you know do things that you don't agree with but the the spend that is available to local government is a is a shrinking pool of money and that's caused the the power of local government to shrink and the ability for them to deliver services and to make change has shrunk as well so you know if you think about the cost blowouts that we're facing with infrastructure with the expense of running a city on a shrinking amount of money, um, you know, which is rates funded, which is pretty much most of the way that local government um, has the money to, to spend on running its cities, it really makes sense that it's time for central government to look in and, and um, deal to some of that cost sharing.
1: Because from a distance, um, I've often heard this, and over the years from pe- from ministers even, that growth pays for growth and that councils <laughs> should want to encourage Mm -hmm. more people coming to their city so that they can charge them more rates over the years and that a thriving, populous city is a good thing and everyone Mm -hmm. wants that. And they can't understand why um, councils, for whatever reason, sometimes say no does growth pay for growth?
0: No, it doesn't. And you know, the answer from central government is often, well, that just shows how inept council is. But just to sort of unpack it in a really brief and a, you know, hopefully simple way. In a growing council like Auckland or Tauranga or some of the other fast growing councils, to develop housing, you have to first of all pay for the infrastructure that that you know, is beneath the beneath the ground. Some of that developers pay for, and some of those costs are recoverable. But in the main, not all that cost is ever going to be recovered because you have to sort of build ahead of growth, and that's where the cost comes in. Secondly, this stuff is really expensive, so you need to borrow money to to do that. So that's the intergenerational um, expense that 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 is very, very challenging for people to understand. And thirdly, when you set budgets for council, you kind of set a new budget pretty much every year that just covers what it costs to run the city. So more houses, you don't get more rates. You just spread the rates amongst more houses Um, and despite all of the mythology that exists, more houses don't mean more rates. So councils aren't there greedily um, encouraging growth so that they can get more rates. It's, It's effectively, you know, broadly speaking, cost neutral. The, the other myth, or the other frustration rather than a myth, is that s- local government makes money out of growth. Central government makes money out of growth. They're making money at the moment with, um, with building, with the hugely busy environment that we've got out there with houses going up left, right and centre. That all the GST that's related to growth goes back to Government council doesn't see a cent of it so for them growth equals cost of course there are benefits you know you get thriving towns you you do all the right thing for your community but financially there's not a lot of incentive for councils to be hugely enthusiastic about growth
1: and at the same time as the government sets the migration settings and has never really either within itself or between the main parties or between government and councils ever actually had a conversation about how much population growth we want and how fast we want to grow, the councils are in a way lumped with population growth, whether they like it or not. And whenever they have to plan for population growth, they're the ones that have to pay for the water infrastructure And also for at least half of the public transport infrastructure and and dealing with roads and putting in parks and and cycleways and pathways Um, can you talk us through how a council would plan 10, 20 years out because whenever you um, put down a pipe or lay out some new roads or um, redevelop a brownfield site, um, it's not a short short term thing and it's it's never i'll just do that right now i won't tell anyone i'll just do it um and tell us about you know that planning process and whether or not things are joined up between central and local government particularly around population and the planning of dealing with that population so,
0: there are parts on the on the good side of things. There are parts that are joined up. You know Government is pretty open about their um, their migration settings, their expectations of of growth so you know there are some reasonable discussions that happen with local government. However, as you say quite rightly, local government doesn 't have choices about the level of growth that that they Accept and you know my experiences with Auckland. So with the amalgamation of the cities into the so-called super city, the first thing we did was draft up the Auckland plan, which set out for how the entire region would would be developed in a way that was a little bit more um, organised and and connected and then out of that came the, the unitary plan which which set out which areas would, would be developed over what period of time to give for the next 20 to 30 years a pipeline of both construction and development and an understanding of where the big pieces of kit needed to be, you know, the the big busways, the big water infrastructure and, and all of the other things that keep a city functioning. So at one level, councils have a really big idea of how that jigsaw puzzle fits together. Where the complexity comes in is their ability to control some of that. And in the local government sector, Probably there are some concerns about some of the changes to the Resource Management Act and the ability for local councils to say, we understand there's growth that's happening, but this is the amount of infrastructure we can afford to provide at any given moment in time, because you cannot lump a thousand houses on a bare piece of land without infrastructure both physical infrastructure and social infrastructure, to build communities. And that's where I think the local government, central government stress and tension has developed. Central government get very grumpy with local government when we say, well, maybe not here's a good idea because they're pretty driven to get those houses built. But we're also driven to make sure that communities thrive and that you don't strand a whole lot of people without public transport, amenity and options to build genuine community.
1: You mentioned the phrase, whether it can be afforded. And we often hear this back from central government and local government and not just the Auckland Council, but that, you know, well, this is too expensive, this infrastructure. We can't afford it. Um, we've hit our debt limits. And, and uh, if we borrowed money to pay for this infrastructure, that would take us above our debt limits. Mm-hmm. Can you explain from the point of view of... Uh, you know, Deputy Mayor, someone who's um, had the officials from the council, and no doubt the tr- the treasury and Waka Kotahi and everyone else saying you can't afford it. Where does that come from? Because actually, Auckland Council uh, and it's the biggest borrower and um, the fastest growing has a double A credit rating, <laughs> and when you look at its mm-hmm. debt. Um, levels, uh, they are, compared to a a regular family who's borrowed money for a house, infinitesimally (laughs) low uh, in terms of how much of their income they have to pay Mm -hmm. in interest costs and also how much the debt is relative to the value of assets. You know, a lot of people when they buy a house are comfortable taking out a loan which is worth three or four times their income. Whereas um, for a council, um, it uh, cannot borrow any more than about 270% of its its income. And actually, when you look at the value of its assets, the debt is tiny. So if you you looked at a loan-to-value ratio, so to speak, it is absolutely tiny. So why can't we afford this infrastructure? In theory, debt is all about... Mm -hmm borrowing long-term and then paying it back long-term so that future generations are paying for it in 20 or 30 years' time and not and today's generation doesn't have to pay for it all now.
0: This is one of the most challenging discussions that councils can have with their communities and it's a very good reason why I think we need to have the big civic conversations about what it takes to get cities growing properly, to get cities thriving, how your rates are not just an impost of cost, but they are your contribution to the city that you live in so that you're a good ancestor, that your grandchildren can still live in a city where, you know, they get the same benefits that we get today. And that actually requires shoving quite a lot of money into the system. And you're right, Bernard, but the you talk to your average ratepayer and they they look at the quantum of debt, and you look at the political rhetoric and the the election that's just been um, fought in Auckland, and it makes it sound as if we are drowning in debt, as if we are out of control, and that we're fiscally irresponsible as a council. The reality is exactly as you've as you've unpacked so so sensibly. So, you know, if we're looking at what we need, we need to we need to invest in things that are going to allow us to be adaptable and cope with climate change. So, you know, some of this is going to be infrastructure that helps make our communities safe and, you know, deals to flooding issues. That's not a luxury. That's something that's critical. Public transport is absolutely critical, and we have to invest in that. And this is intergenerational. You know what? What I'm paying for now will be used by my grandchildren, and that's the right way. You know, my grandparents paid paid rates that are you know I'm now utilising the the um, infrastructure that they invested in. So you know, to, to kind of summarise, I think we need people to understand the debt is not a it's not a burden it's the way of getting things done and running cities that the quantum of debt is if it's well managed is is not as terrifying as it sounds and that councils have the ability to rate so you know we are not going to fall into you know we're not going to fall behind with the mortgage and we're also required to make sure that we keep those within affordable limits but it is a very easy political soapbox to hop onto and that's why I think we've kind of lost the plot around why debt is so... It's not as terrifying as it sounds and it's a good investment in the future.
1: When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily
0: quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right, and you'll get the chance to score yourself
1: some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call, or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply.
0: Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today.
1: One of the differences between uh, local government in New Zealand and in other places, say, for example, Australia, where the states have the ability to bring in land taxes and uh, stamp duties and actually get a share of GST and sometimes in other countries, local government also get a share of income taxes. What did the uh, uh, inquiry suggest around this issue of sharing in the benefits of growth Mm -hmm. and, in particular, income from all these extra people spending all this extra money?
0: Mm, We've been... I think we've taken um, a fairly cautious approach to this and I'm hoping that... um, as we call for submissions for our our report that our community and the local government sector and the government give us some fairly strong ideas on on where to take this. There's been, you know, 16 or 17 reviews of local government funding and even the Prodcom, you know, their, their reports are calling for more funding from central government to local government by way of, you know, a percentage of the GST raised during these great, you know, spurts of growth like we've got at the moment. I mean, if I'm really honest, I think the Regional Growth Fund, although it was highly criticised, has delivered some genuine outcomes. And if we could link you know, the the volume of GST raised in certain areas to a a return to community via something like the Regional Growth Fund, I think that could be, you know, a positive thing to to look at. But as I say, I think we've been a little bit cautious in our report about that. We've we've suggested that there could be other methods of of raising funds, but as an Aucklander I know that the big tax issue certainly did not land well. So I'm a little bit um you know, I guess a little bit gun-shy of some of those issues, but we're certainly needing to explore a more coherent and joined-up approach for central government to help fund the the role of local government. And in its simplest form, it may be 5% of the tax take is returned to, to local government to fund intergenerational infrastructure, you know.
1: Yeah, so apart from the financing issue, there was also the governance uh, issue um, looked at in the inquiry. And we it was obviously the report came out um, not long after the results of the elections where the turnout uh, did not improve across the country and in some places was worse. And there is this term that I stumbled across in a Productivity Commission report of the democratic deficit. And I must say mm-hmm. it reframed the in my thinking about councils and development and the relationship between councils and ratepayers and voters and the central government, it hadn't really occurred to me before that actually councils are representative of the people who vote for them. And because of relatively low turnout rates, particularly amongst um, those people who are economically struggling, um, who are relatively new to the city, who may not own too many assets. They may be renters, they may have multiple jobs, they may be in um, large families. Uh, those are the ones who are not necessarily voting in councils, whereas older, uh, uh, more Pākehā, more suburban, more homeowning people are the ones who vote in in council elections, how does that change the the flavor of what councils do and decide and how should we we look at that?
0: We've taken a really good look at this and you know in my 30 or so years of being around local government, I've watched a huge change in people's trust, their belief in their understanding of of council and their willingness to be involved in council processes. You know there's been um, there's been a huge, Drop in confidence and trust and and the feeling that local government is somehow irrelevant and the narrative has really caught on and if we you, you know if you unpack that, I think it's actually understandable increasingly local government feels it, it, it's not there's not a process by which we can explain why it's relevant to your life on a daily basis. And looking at social media, and you know the kind of the instant headline grabbing, clickbait news that there is. The only time you ever read about local government is when something bad happens, on or you know it's neighbours at war, or there's some you know hideous mistake that happens. So you know the reality is number one, how do we assist people to understand why it's so critical to be involved in local government issues, and secondly how do you get involved if you don't see anyone who looks like you around that council table you know if it's if it's all old Pagia woman like me and and you know it often is or old blokes where where do our young people fit in where do our our diverse communities fit in so that that's the second challenge and the third one is I think we've kind of moved to a stage where just having people elected to make decisions on behalf of the community is wearing a little bit thin. And the community is saying, we want to be back in there. We want to be making those decisions. And we've looked at Europe and um, across the world at citizens' juries, at um ways that decisions are made that are far more inclusive with, with communities involved in a well-informed, well-curated way so that the the communities can, can make the decisions them, themselves. And I'm particularly interested in that as a way forward so that we we have systems that are much more inclusive, that don't just rely on, you know, the old-fashioned make a submission and come and talk to us for a minute and then... and you know, and head off, back out the door. But that get communities right at the grassroots, making those critical decisions because they do, you know, these are impactful on future generations. They impact the whole community. And we need to bring people back into the fold and feel that you are part of making place, that you are part of your community, that you have every right to be involved and that you can make
1: change. Particularly in this era where, it's clear our biggest challenges are housing unaffordability yep. and quality and location along mm-hmm. with, and in fact very closely connected to, public transport, cycling, walking, mode shift. In my view, the, the collection of housing unaffordability, climate change inaction, and child poverty are in fact one issue bound up in solving this issue of redesigning our cities for warm, dry, carbon zero houses, where people can walk and cycle, or electric bike or car to work, to play, to uh, um, to home. Uh, and all of those decisions about where you put roads and cycleways, where you put houses, what type of houses you've got, where you plant your trees, all of those things, are decided not in Wellington, but in and around council chambers up and down the land. You could argue that councils are not only even more relevant, they're more crucial than they ever have been. Uh, do you think that this is reflected in the ways that public perceptions and perceptions from the central government and perceptions of submitters to your inquiry, was that reflected in those views?
0: Things have become very binary, Bernard. You know, you either support cycle waves or you don't. You either support three waters or you don't. You either support urban intensification or you don't. And I don't think that we've taken the time as a country or as a local government sector to say to people, how do we join all of these issues exactly as you are saying? What 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 will drive social equity, what and social justice and climate change and warm, dry homes and the right places that give people choices for how they live? All of those are interconnected, but we need to have the right opportunities to have those more informed conversations. So, you know, in my mind, we've reached some fairly difficult places I've read in Wellington and we certainly have in Auckland around um, urban density and, you know, do you demolish the old villa and buy and build 10 more warm, dry houses to give 10 families a chance to live well? We are inclined to be... Um, Irritated when people disagree with us as, as local government and we don't take the time to have different conversations. If we used a citizens assembly made up of, you know, demographically diverse members of our community and presented them these issues to deal with and to resolve and to take the time to talk through I think we could have much better outcomes. So the time for, you know, make a decision, go out and consult a bit, and then come back and be irritated with people who disagree with you and then wonder why the whole thing falls apart has has gone and... Part of our report is trying to open up those different ways of looking at what democracy means and to look at politicians who are curators of democracy, not there to simply be democracy themselves by the fact that they're around the table.
1: Penny, you've um, been around these council tables for many, many years and achieved um, many, many things. Um, Are you hopeful and Do you think that despite all the frustrations and difficulties, that Auckland in particular, where you've been involved, is a better place to live and can get better despite all of this?
0: I'm always hopeful. And I'm reading a fantastic book by John, I think his name's Alexander, about citizens. And I've got this real feeling that just below the surface is bubbling all of this energy to, to sort of take charge a little bit in a positive way, you know, not to kind of storm the White House, but to take charge again of our place and our responsibility for making our communities good. There's people out there, whether it's organising local composting initiatives or, you know, organising cycling lessons so, you know, more people can cycle to work. There's, in response to the negativity and challenge... The citizens are starting to organise and what excites me is that when you've got a really connected community, that's when the magic happens and what we need to do is to kind of help link, draw together, support and not be afraid of these movements. You know, look at what um, the Extinction Rebellion, the the climate um the demonstrations around climate change are making an impact. So yeah, am I hopeful? Always hopeful. Can we make a difference? Of course we can, but we need for local government to be there and match that level of excitement about what can be achieved at a citizen level and to move forward in a an enabling way, you know, and it's going to be a bit rocky and it's going to be a little bit shaky and not everyone's going to love what we're suggesting. But I guess just read the report and see what you can find in there that's going to be of use and let us know what you like. More importantly, let us know what you don't like and what ideas you've got for making it better.
1: And just finally, um, we know, covering local and central government, but that often these decisions, the way that uh, final reports are framed, recommendations that are taking up, are often shaped by uh, um, people behind the scenes advising governments uh, in places like Treasury, Department of Internal Affairs, uh, mm-hmm. Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment. Uh, and from my experience looking from Wellington, often there is a, a caution and uh, perhaps a reluctance to... Um, give much control or credit or money to uh, people out in, in councils. What would you say to them when they, they they come to you with a a view that councils are maybe not quite as relevant? That the people who are there are the ones who decided not to do the the big jobs in central government. Mm. Um, what would you say to them?
0: Local government is made up of just as many characters, both capable and not capable, as central government are. Central government's just better at, you know, hiding the weirdness, I think. But the joy of local government is that we are the layer of government closest to the community. And as such, when local government is working well, it's an extraordinarily powerful unit. And the tragedy is that central government is missing out on just that, you know, joining the dots and joining the links and looking at things like, you know, ram raids are happening immediately. People reach for a fund and they reach for sort of a centralized solution. Now, admittedly, there are some discussions on the ground locally but why not talk to local councils about who who's working well with our young people, what might change, what could you invest in to give those young people a bit of hope and a bit of meaning, and how do we do things differently? And for better or worse, local government is usually the group most plugged into the community. So for central government, you know, if if we look at how things are in Aotearoa at the moment, they're pretty challenging. Plug into that, that local knowledge and invest locally, and you will see something pretty special happening. We might be a bit ropey from time to time, but that's the reality of community.
1: Penny Holtz, a former Deputy Mayor of Auckland and a member of the Future of Local Government Inquiry. Penny, thank you so much for being on When the Facts Change. Kia ora.
0: Oh, kia ora. Thank you, Bernard.
1: When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off.
0: Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generateKiwiSaver.co.nz slash get advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekewusaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin Off Podcast Network.